Since the opening of the year, we've looked at some uh, obscure, I guess, or obscure passages, things that are often overlooked or forgotten in the New Testament in the letter of Jude. And I don't intentionally continue that trend, um, but the letter of Second Peter sort of ranks up there as far as uh, material that is often uh, overlooked. It starts on page 1018, the Bible's in front of you there. Uh, as, as we read through Second Peter, we're going to hear some familiar language uh, from Jude's letter. There's significant overlap here, especially in chapter 2, when speaking of the false teachers in the church. And that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to go through this letter uh, with you uh, at this point in time. Uh, we don't know for certain if Peter used Jude or Jude used what Peter had written by leaning the direction that Jude is the earlier uh, letter. And so I want us to hear this language again. Peter is going to use similar, uh, similar language, making similar points, but from a slightly different uh, perspective. And he leaves the church with more to think about when it comes to contending for the faith, a language that we uh, read in Jude. Faith is central to uh, Peter's letter. It's a faith that is cultivated through a knowledge of God uh, and the Lord Jesus, uh, but consistent with uh, the genre of New Testament letters, there's an opening, a greeting here that we're going to look at this morning. And so often the, the themes, the purposes of the letter uh, surface as we read uh, these introductions. So, Second Peter 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have t- obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Our great and mighty God, we are grateful that you have condescended to us, that you have given us your word in a way that we can read, in a way that we can comprehend and apply to our lives. Lord, we don't presume to do this on our own. We need you, O God the help of your Holy Spirit in these moments to work this Word into our hearts and into our minds. Lord, speak that which is true and helpful, imprinted in our hearts, that which is untrue or unhelpful, block out, that we might hear your Word to us. Or make us attentive in these moments. We are grateful that Though all else passes away, it is your word that endures. And it's upon that word uh, that we stand this day. And we offer it in Christ's name. Amen. So what would you include in a letter if you knew that it would be the last letter you ever wrote? The last words that anyone is ever going to read from you. I've just handed you a pencil and paper to write this last letter. Handed you the keyboard. You've got an hour to write your final words. What would you say? Who would you write to? So last weekend, my mom was visiting uh, with us. She was still here on Monday. So I thought, I'm going to ask my mom this question. You know, she's, she's been around a lot longer than I have. She's you know, seen all of my life. Who would she write? What would her last letter look like? Um, and it didn't take her long to, to answer. You know, mom, what would you put in this last letter? She said, I would write to my grandchildren and encourage them to look to Jesus, to study His Word, 
to stand upon what is true when there is so much in this world that's going to try to pull them away from Jesus. And she also said she'd make a note to her kids. thought that was kind. Um, to, you know, to continue on in their, in their parenting. Um, but here's how she ended her comment. She said, I could talk about money tips. I could talk about you know, giving advice about relationships. But I would focus on the spiritual because that's what lasts. That's what endures. And that was really neat to hear from my mom because I think it, it rings true with how I would write, probably how, how most of you would write what you would put in a final letter. Um, Peter has a similar focus in this letter, which is very likely his last. We read in, in 1 verse 14, it says, Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So the end is near for the apostle. This is his farewell letter. And so he's encouraging the church, all those who would come behind him, um, about the dangers of false teachers, the twisting of, of God's grace. In a world where there's plenty of alternate gospels, there is but one that comes to us from the Lord God, um, the authority of his word. And usually when we hear a farewell address, maybe, maybe you've received a letter from a family member that was the last thing you knew that they wrote. You you typically go back to that letter, don't you? And maybe you peruse it again and you read it over and over again because it, it helps you remember what was important to that person, what they wanted to leave with you. Um, that's what Peter's doing here. Um, he's an apostle that well, we read a lot about him in the New Testament. We're familiar with him, and Peter is someone who we can relate well to as human beings. I'll mention this again. I really like the way one commentator speaks of Peter when he says, his impulsive deeds, his frequent questions, his eager exclamations and confessions, his sometimes manly and sometimes cowardly acts, his oaths, his bitter tears. All this make Peter the great companion and the great instructor of his fellow men. That's so good. Okay, we are listening to the apostle as our companion and our instructor and listening over and over again to these final words. So uh, Peter's addressing those of faith uh, throughout the generations, and it is this shared faith that I want to look through at this opening. Uh, we find a faith that is given by God. Who is Peter in the faith? Who are, who are we, or the church, in the faith? And then a faith that is growing in verse 2. So faith is given, faith is growing. So Peter opens with a couple of names and a couple of titles uh, that should give the church great confidence that this is, this is actually Peter, this is actually the apostle, and these words are coming from him. It should give us confidence that this is in fact uh, the fishermen from Galilee uh, that Jesus called to follow him. Oftentimes, Second Peter is downplayed or it is ignored because well, folks don't think it actually came from Peter. There are different reasons uh, for that. Um, a couple of weeks ago, some of you received uh, uh, some text messages claiming to come from me. Uh, and it, it was a different phone number than mine, but they seemed legitimate. Hey, I could use your help with this. Could you please contact me? Um, and then it put the name, put Reverend Brad, all spelled out. Reverend Brad. Now how many, how often does my communication end that way? Reverend Brad. 
Um, never. You don't see that. Um, the only reference I think we have to that more high church title is on the back of the bulletin or in the, on the website or something. Um, so when you saw that text, I know it was only a handful of you, but you were immediately skeptical. And for good reason. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure about this. It doesn't sound quite right. And the Apostle includes something here which we might think would have the same effect. Say, wait, wait a minute. That, that doesn't sound like Peter. But by using this, this two-part name, I really think he is accomplishing the opposite. He's doing something that is unique as a way of authenticating that he is, in fact, the author of this letter. There are many early uh, manuscripts that read Simon Peter, um, but some very trusted, important ones that keep the transliteration here of Simeon Peter. Simeon is a Jewish name. It's Peter's birth name. How he would be known in very Jewish context. We read this again in Acts chapter 15 where the leaders of the church come together in Jerusalem. You can't get much more Jewish in context than that. And James actually refers to Peter this way as Simeon. But why here then in a letter that's going primarily to a Gentile audience in Asia Minor? It's it's uniqueness that underscores that it's coming from this Peter, this Jewish fisherman. It's distinct. If someone were trying to write in the place of Peter, and this was happening, you know, here's, here's a message from Peter, here's a letter from Peter, here's a sermon from Peter, and the church had to sift through these things. It's this Simeon, the one whom Jesus called the rock that is addressing the church. So we have the whole Peter here in these two names. We have the, the old Peter, the fisherman, from Galilee, that Jesus takes and makes into a real fisher of men. It's upon Peter, upon his testimony, that the church uh, would be built. And that is a major transformation. I I almost think of of Paul's new man, old man comparison here. It's a distinction. He's Simeon Peter, and he's both. He identifies himself as both for the church. And and this really helps us with the relatability of Peter, doesn't it? Um, Here's a fisherman that God has done amazing things with. An ordinary Jewish guy that Jesus loves and teaches and befriends and appoints at a very important time in the life of the church. So if God can do things like that with a person like Peter, well, you know what? He can do it with you. And with me. He can change us. He does change us. Just transform us by His grace. And Peter gives two titles. He's a servant of Jesus and an apostle of Jesus. You may recall from our time in Jude that this title of, of a servant or a bondservant is really a privileged title. It was an honor. A willful, voluntary uh, service to one's master. And so Peter is claiming, he's, he's claiming no inherent authority. Uh, it is Christ who is his master. He answers to Jesus. So he's a servant, but also an apostle. An apostle is a messenger. 
carrying the words of another, in this case, the very Word of God. But in this greeting, it's, it's a little bit more than just messenger when coming from Peter. He, is, he has been one uniquely appointed by the Lord Jesus to testify to what he has seen and heard, learned of the Savior. Remember, Jesus called 12 apostles. One betrayed him, and so the church prayed over two others. Um, in Acts chapter 1, and Matthias was selected to join the 11 apostles, uniquely qualified group of men. So we can be confident of who Peter is in the faith. He's a servant, a divinely appointed apostle, and one of the Lord's closest friends in a few years of his earthly ministry. And we get to the second part of verse 1. It tells us who Peter is writing to, who share in the faith of not just Peter, but of all the apostles. Sometimes I think it may have been easy for the young church, maybe for us at times, be honest with yourself here, to think of the apostles kind of up here in the faith, sort of on on their own pedestal, these super spiritual men who may have had time to write to the church. Um, Maybe you've seen some some footage, maybe you've actually been in that place where you have been face-to-face with one of your sports heroes or a celebrity. And when that usually happens, one of two things happens. Somebody goes crazy, or they're just dumbfounded, and they don't know, they don't know what to say. I saw a, a picture of this, uh, the tennis star Roger Federer. Uh, he was done with a match, and, and as he you know, threw his towel on the bench and got closer to the wall, I mean, the fans just began to press against the wall, and they're all reaching out with their hands and the hats and the big tennis balls. And, and there was a little boy who appeared to be getting crushed right at the wall. And so Federer calls the security over and, and, and has them push the, the folks back and then he grabs this little boy and pulls him over the wall and you know, signs his head and signs the, the tennis ball. So this boy went from absolute terror to awe and delight. Um, you know, it's so easy for us to put those that we admire in this place of, of awe. But Peter, the the apostle who enjoyed conversations with the Lord Jesus, he says that all believers, in all places, you, me, we have a faith of equal standing. We have have the the same kind of faith. We have the same benefits and blessings in union with Christ. Just just as the apostles have. So your faith in mine is not in any way you know, inferior or deficient from that of the apostles. No class system of faith um, here. Another way we could say this is that all believers are on level ground at the foot of the cross. Why? Because this faith is given by God. It is His gracious gift to the apostles and it's His gift to us. And this is not something that we can produce in and of ourselves by our own willpower, by our own determination. We're just going to grit up enough faith in the Lord. No, it is appointed by God's grace, by His goodness and pleasure in us. Recall how the Apostle Paul, he says this in Ephesians 2. We're reminded of this again in Sunday school this morning. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this faith is not of yourselves. 
It is the gift of God. And later writing to Titus, Paul says, to my true child in a common faith. A faith of equal standing from a sovereign God who does not give equally, but gives graciously. So let's give praise to God. Give thanks for the faith that He gives. The very fact that you are here this morning desiring to worship believing, trusting in the finished work of Jesus, that's God's gift to you. It's a wonder of God's grace. Wonder of God's grace alone to Peter. I think you know, there are times when our faith uh, is weaker. There are times we're really struggling in the faith. There are times when we are just holding on by our fingernails, wondering, how can I really believe? Is this really true? Hear hear what Peter is saying of your faith. Even when it's a weak faith. And let me tell you, Peter is quite familiar with a weak faith and what that looks and feels like. He says it's of equal standing before God. He knows. He holds. He keeps his own in the faith that he graciously gives. His faith has been given by God, stands upon God the perfect obedience, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Peter uh, places emphasis on this right away in verse 1. It's the saving righteousness of Christ, a righteousness credited to you and to me by God's grace. And we consider that the deity of Jesus, His oneness with the Father, equal in in power and authority, will often go to places like John chapter 1. The beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Or into Hebrews chapter 1, where Jesus is the the visible manifestation uh, of God. Or Colossians chapter 1. But let's not forget 2 Peter 1. And this is one of the clearest um, statements of Jesus as both God and Savior. Not just a God, not one of many gods. He is one with the Father. We belong to Him. He belongs to us. He is our God. The absolute sovereignty of Jesus. That's another theme of this letter. And we'll find it in, uh, uh, in these clo- opening verses and closing verses as well. Uh, so faith is given to Peter uh, and to the church. This is also a faith that is growing. That's Peter's prayer for the church. Uh, the grace and peace of God would multiply, that it would increase in their lives. Very similar to his first letter. We also read of this multiplying in Jude's letter. In many cases, like we have here, God's grace is that term that captures all of what He has done for us in the Lord Jesus. It's God's grace that calls us. It's God's grace that justifies. His grace that sanctifies and adopts and glorifies. And Peter's desire is that that grace would abound to the church. And as they receive this grace, they grow and experience that true peace that God gives. You know, peace, not just the absence of conflict. That's what we think of first and foremost when we think of peace, right? The absence of fighting, infighting in our family, in the church, or just fighting outside of, of ourselves. Um, but even in a world of fighting, even in a world of trouble, there is peace. God's shalom, a wholeness, um, 
an, an end state of salvation that is ours already, but not yet fully. Uh, the peace of God is given when our minds are fixed upon Christ. Uh, this peace is also a, a product. It's a fruit of the Spirit of Christ uh, in our lives. Uh, I wonder if we could you know, try this more often as a, as a church when greeting one another, saying farewell, to include that shalom. That's the word. Not because we're Jewish, but because this peace is true for us. And it's what we long for every day. Full restoration, the shalom of our God in Jesus Christ. So don't be surprised if someone greets you with a shalom. It's what we long for. So the God who gives faith, the one, He, he is the one who gives this grace and this peace. If we're going to make any progress in the Christian life, if our faith is going to grow and mature, it will be God who does this work in us. We hear Paul, maybe Philippians 1.6, ringing in the background, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Jesus Christ. We are saved and sanctified by God's grace. His grace and peace increase to us because He allows it. Because He enables it. Here's here's where we have to give a subtle warning. Our human inclination, the sin that remains, it wants to take advantage of God's grace to excuse sin. Does that sound at all familiar? A little letter we studied recently. Oh, Oh, you mean you don't go there? Oh, you don't say that? As a family? You don't, you don't watch that as a family? Come on. Sounds a little legalistic. We will easily pull the grace card to dodge responsibility and accountability and obedience, holiness. So we need, we need to remember that, that grace and obedience, they're both coming from God. Grace and holiness both come from Him. Grace makes our holiness possible. Here's Brian Chappell. He's, uh, he's written, uh, Holiness springs from the fountain of grace. So we incline our hearts to God even as He graciously inclines our hearts to Him. So grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Uh, knowledge is a key term for Peter. Uh, everything he writes is to promote a deeper knowledge of God. If we are to know God the Father, then we must know His Son. A deeper, full knowledge that comes by the Spirit of God in us. The church in Colossae, again, here's Paul. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then to Philemon, his dear brother, in the faith, he said, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is ours for the sake of Christ. So as believers, our knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus, it has a distinct content. Okay, There are things to study and learn and to keep learning. But this knowledge that Peter is speaking of here is much more than academic, much more than just what we have in our heads also about the heart. 
It is, is a personal, it, it's relational. Maybe you noticed in verse 1, you know, Jesus is one with the Father, Jesus is God, but in verse 2 there's a distinction. Did you catch that? Knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We are to know this Jesus. Okay, that there's an experiential knowledge here that comes once the Lord has captured our hearts. Now we actually can learn and we, we want to grow. We want this knowledge of Jesus. We're not content with our present relationship with the Lord. We want, we want more of this knowledge. We just want more of Him. The One who loves us so deeply. You have a married couple and the guy says, you know what? I know everything there is to know about my wife. Which he'll only say after he hits his head because that's a human impossibility for men. Um, or, you know, a wife says, I have him pegged. There's nothing that surprises me. I, I know everything there is to know. Which actually may be possible for women in that relationship. Um, but talk about a boring and dull marriage if it ever survives. Um, no desire to learn more. No to know more of one's spouse. Jesus, our bridegroom who delights in us, calls us to know Him more. So Peter's going to elaborate to the church across the ages this knowledge of God, what it looks like. And that's where we're headed in this letter. Um, and as we read Peter together, we're going, to, uh, we're going to hear his tone is not overly friendly at times. Not what we might call pastoral uh, in his writing. Uh, one commentator said, this is, this is a fighting letter more than a friendly one. Uh, that's, that's pretty strong. But you can almost see Jude smiling as his brother in Christ is now contending for the faith in his last, last days. The knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus so necessary uh, for the church in a pagan culture to contend um, that's what Peter will go back to. He'll, he'll close this letter with this same prayer that we've just read. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, so it's a farewell. His last letter sets out to strengthen the church. Um, a church who just like him must follow after Christ. And hold fast to the knowledge of God. I mean, Here is a man who spoke great truth. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. A man who spoke great nonsense. Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. You spoke with great courage, Lord. If it's you, command me to come to you on the water. He spoke with great confidence. Though they may all fall away, I will never fall away. And he spoke with great fear. I, I, I don't know the man. So, so we can relate. There is much we see of ourselves, um, different, different times and seasons of faith, in Peter's responses. Um, and this, this is who God is using to instruct his church through the ages. You remember in Luke chapter 21, the Lord Jesus restores Peter. And he says, Peter, tend my sheep, feed my lambs. This is Peter's tending. This is his feeding before he shares in Christ's suffering unto death. The grace and mercy 
that was extended to the apostle, that is extended to you and to me, to all those who look with eyes of faith to the Lord Jesus, both our God and our Savior. Let's pray to him. Father, we are grateful that even in these few words of the apostles' greeting, words at a time so very significant for him at the end of his life, Lord, we thank you that it is you who give us the faith to believe. That you are, are, have given this faith and you are the one who is growing that faith in us. And we look to you and trust you to do this, Lord. We thank you that as we go through this farewell letter from Peter, that it is your intention to build us up to encourage us in the faith, to call to mind that we might remember over and over again with great joy what you have accomplished for us in Jesus, our God and our Savior. To you be the glory, O Christ. We thank you for feeding us now and feeding us at your table. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.